0: welcome to the brand the interpreter podcast i'm your host Mireya Perez a community interpreter in k-12 public education with a desire to listen to the stories of other language professionals from all over the world these are your stories about our profession Welcome back to another episode of the Brandy Interpreter podcast. I'm so glad you're here. Today, I have Nicholas James Zacherl. Nicholas James Zachrow is a State Department conference interpreter and a French, German, and Spanish certified court interpreter in over 15 states. He has thousands of hours of medical, legal, and conference interpreting experience as well as training. In the early 2000s, Nicholas worked as an intern in Brussels at institutions such as the European Parliament, the European Commission, and the European Environmental Bureau, where his passion for ecology and languages blended with the crash course in the European legislative process. Nicholas earned a master's in conference interpreting from London Metropolitan University. He went on to interpret in the European private conference market before returning to the States in 2010 to continue his career. He was the conference interpreter instructor to the French and Spanish section of the 2019 Summer Intensive Interpreting Course at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and has taught professional training courses for certified court interpreters. As a proud son of two public school teachers, Nicholas believes in the real benefits of sharing and equal opportunity. Currently, Nicholas is excited to announce plans for the founding of the world's first remote conference interpreting association, open to absolutely all language professionals. Nicholas runs TexLexLanguages.com, a remote conference interpreting and business consulting firm primarily serving the business and NGO communities. So, without further ado, here's Nicholas Zacherl. Nicholas, thank you for being with us today. Let's take it back a bit, shall we? Sure, sounds good. As a kid, what did you aspire to be when you grew up?
1: Well, kids, I don't think when they're real young realize they're kids, (laughs) and I don't think they know you know, even what aspirations are, but adults, at least when I was a kid would ask me and other kids, you know, what do you want to be when you, when you grow up? And I think a pilot was something that I liked. I didn't know at that time, my grandfather had been a Navy pilot, but I was going to be a fireman. I was, you know, I think that the answers were pretty typical. Um, So what happened between now and then has nothing to do with the answers (laughs) I would give to to that question back then. That's for sure.
0: Well, then, so let's begin by having you share your story, Nicholas. Who is Nicholas Zacharyll? And if you would even include where Zacharyll comes from, what that means.
1: I sure will. So I think, you know, I'll answer in chronological order, um, starting in the 19th century, not that I'm from (laughs) the 19th century, of course. Uh, But the reason I'm going to do that is because I think who I am as an adult, I think, has come from a bit of reflection about um, my place in this country and my place in this world. And I think uh, language professionals that have been around countries and worlds, (laughs) Mm -hmm. they know a bit about that. But in any case, um, the Zacharyl name um, is composed of two different parts, the Z-A-C-H part, which as far as I've uh, gathered, kind of means small, sturdy, and stocky. And then the ERL, which is the diminutive, right? So you have ITO in Spanish. And not only is ERL a German diminutive, but it's specific to the south of Germany and to Switzerland and to Austria. So I come from Wisconsin, which is uh, a predominantly Catholic place, first and foremost. I mean, when John F. Kennedy became president, Wisconsinites were jumping in the streets. And uh, I also come from a place that's that's very German. Um, Irish, Polish, and um, a very rural uh, place where I grew up specifically. So we have a lot of um, German ideals, I think, instilled in our culture there, um, which include uh, the dreams of the people that came across the pond for varying reasons, religious and political and otherwise in the 19th century, and became Wisconsinites, specifically German Wisconsinites from the town of Fond du Lac, where my family comes from. And some of those ideas included, you know, some really cool um, uh, notions of treating people with the same amount of respect and opportunity, no matter where they came from, and um, treating men and women with equal respect and uh, a fair day's work for a fair day pay, (laughs) Mm. a fair day's pay. And for example... um, yeah, trust in the efficiency of, of, of government and, and cooperation and these sorts of things. So I think those characteristics are uniquely Midwestern and specifically to places like Minnesota and Wisconsin, where I come from. And they're also, I think, uh, yeah, evidenced by my name, <laughs> my last name.
0: <laughs> what was it like growing up in Wisconsin?
1: You know, I a child knows no other life than that, which the child has lived, of course, right? Um, mm-hmm. I can tell you, I lived uh, when I was a child in an Amish A-frame that, that was built um, by a person who left the faith. As people who are familiar with the Amish uh, faith know, there's a period called Rumspringa, or, you know, jumping around or, you know, sowing your oats or playing depending on how you want to interpret it um, in which people from the Amish faith get to leave and then perhaps come back. And this was a person who left the faith that built this beautiful A-frame um, that would tilt with uh, the, the axis of the earth changing angle between the seasons, allowing the, the uh, naked deciduous trees to uh, have penetrating sunlight warm the house in winter. And then during the day um, in the summertime when the earth would tilt back to have uh, those same trees provide shade, it was a beautiful bucolic life. It was a wonderful place to learn about nature, uh, to read books, to play Top Gun on, a, on an NES 8-bit machine <laughs> <laughs> of lots of time to spend with my family. So I, I, I'll admit I was a bit bored at times, but um, the elementary school education I had there was something I didn't know how to appreciate until I went to what I, what I would consider to be kind of a, um, you know, a normal uh, school that didn't have the, the quality public education I did when I was a, a young child.
0: So amazing. What other things did you do you recall from maybe even in school? I'm curious, out in Wisconsin, at what point, if it happened out there during your childhood, were you introduced to the world of languages?
1: Right. And that's an excellent question. Um, my father and mother, like I said, were uh, good Wisconsin Catholics that attended uh, Latin Mass, that attended uh, Catholic school, that uh, were exposed to, to Latin as a language that could decline, that, that knew what the ablative was, etc. But they didn't use this language. I think they were imbued with uh, a lens that uh, was perhaps now this is, might be romantic to conjecture, but passed down from the Romans where you learned this beautifully abstract system and perhaps make it real uh, subconsciously in your own life. But I didn't grow up in a house that spoke anything but English. And so I don't know why I was specifically fascinated and curious uh, by the fact that other people would speak English. But I do remember when my father had a Chilean exchange student uh, come over and just watching this person <laughs> speak uh, with mannerisms and an accent that I, I'd never seen before. It was uh, inexplicably fascinating to me. And that that curiosity for new places and, and the differences between people with the kind of subjacent similarity, things that uh, make us the same while these things that make us different are also so present, that, that contrast still fascinates me. And I, I uh, still like to learn and travel for that reason.
0: It's just so interesting because um, around what age were you when um, the Chilean exchange student came over? Do you recall more or
1: less? Oh, I'm gonna say I was eight or nine. We lived on Cypress Road in Neskoal, Wisconsin, which was outside of a town of 200 people. That was outside of a town of
0: 1,700
1: people. Oh my so gosh! I was eight. <laughs>
0: And so, and so you have a, an exchange student come and, and it just opens up this whole different world and, and we'll get into how you even delved into, you know, the world of languages. But for you specifically coming from that moment and around the age of eight until we'll fast forward and talk about how you, you even started in, in becoming a language professional, you are now quadrilingual. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. Yes.
0: That is so fascinating. So then let's go back then a little bit and find out what was the inspiration behind becoming a language professional. Walk us through this journey of yours as you encounter this interest for a second language.
1: Sure. So the exchange student I mentioned was a person that I saw for uh, 10 minutes of my life total. uh, (laughs) That Chilean person fascinated me as a human being. Fast forward uh, past the end of my grade school experience onto my middle school experience. My parents decided that it would be good to host an exchange student in our home in the winter, albeit, in Wisconsin in the, the mid-90s so that uh, I would be able to um, participate in the same network of exchange uh, Companies that would help students to go abroad by going, you know, uh, by taking my own trip to Germany later uh, the next year. So we had a Brazilian uh, come to spend time in the snow oh, wow. in the city of Sao Paulo, in a town of seventeen thousand mill workers in the frozen, <laughs> bitter uh, winter of Wisconsin. And uh, I got to, I, was-
0: I got to get a hold of that person and bring them on the show. See if they remember that experience. <laughs>
1: Trust, trust me, that experience is, will never be forgotten by this poor person, but it happened. Uh, Eduardo, um, as far as I, I've last checked now, lives in the Baltics. He lives in uh, Latvia and he's he's married and um, runs a business remotely from there, unless he's gone back to Sao Paulo. He hopped back and forth across the Atlantic for a few years, but he's still up there somewhere.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. And so you have this experience and this was more or less what? Middle school, junior high school now?
1: This was already high school. Um, I was hoping that people would be impressed with my guitar playing skills and about to drive a car. So that would have been high school.
0: Okay, so it's in high school where you get introduced to the world of languages. And so what happened? Did you end up in Germany first?
1: Right. So I was most fascinated by German. It was a tie between German and Jap- Japanese. And in um, uh, Wisconsin Rapids, where I went to uh, middle school. At around the age of 13, we were presented with a smorgasbord sampling of languages. You you got French, Spanish, Japanese, and German at uh, East Junior High at that time. So German was the one that struck my fancy the most. I wasn't consciously thinking of my German background, but decided to go to Germany in 1995 and to begin to learn German. And uh, I jumped in the deep end of the pool that way without knowing what I was doing. I should have been much more embarrassed <laughs> <than I> was <laughs> about how terrible my German was. But uh, the reason I didn't have time to be embarrassed was because I was just so fascinated by what it was like to wander around this new place where I could get on a train, where people carried themselves differently, where there were cities, all these big changes. And the fascination kind of insulated me from any kind of shame that I probably should have been feeling about the <laughs> rotten... German. But within a couple weeks, I was able to hobble around in the language. And um, the people were so continually nice to me that I had five really good months there and uh, came back speaking German.
0: Wow, five months. Do you recall, aside from, you know, the couple of things that you just mentioned, like, how different was it from Wisconsin?
1: Well, at that point, I was, uh, I think, 16. But it was really, really different from Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And first and foremost, because I was in a city and what, I, what I've come to realize later in life, that to me, the difference between being in the country and being in a city was more important than being, you know, in as long as I was in the same latitude, I could be in Poland, or I could be in Michigan. And that's a smaller difference, I think um, than being in Warsaw and, you know, being in, in the UP. So it's sort of, uh, the, the human surroundings are important, but to me, the the natural surroundings, um, are even more important. And the Mm -hmm. environment has always been a really important thing to me. I think that's probably why.
0: So Nicholas, you, you go to Germany for about five months at the age of 16 and you come back and I'm sure you're just, you know, just excited to say the least of you know what the experience that you just had. What happens next?
1: I came back to finish my time in high school at Lincoln High School, and again, I didn't know how lucky I was to go to such a strong public elementary school until I went to uh, a kind of presentable but middle of the road um, middle and high school. Um, you know, I'm not trying to say bad things about the town I graduated high school from, but it was not as uh, you know, um, luxurious, I suppose, in the quality of education as day elementary was in Watoma, Wisconsin. So I was eager to get out of high school. And I was not uh, thrilled with being told to get out my TA85 calculator and do as I was told. I was a pretty Socratic child at that point, And I like to ask why. And the uh, instruction I got was not into answering that question. So Um, I went to the University of Minnesota with pretty mediocre grades and just barely squeaked into what they called the general college at that time and um, didn't think I was going to enjoy my academic career as much as I ended up enjoying it. But I quickly finished high school and got out of uh, Wisconsin Rapids and started attending the University of Minnesota in 1997.
0: Would you say that when you started the university, you already had your major in mind or were you like many of us that, you know, just kind of dove in and hope, hope for the best.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, my strategy at that point, because... Like I said, I, I was so scarred by the the rote learning shoved down my throat during my math, high school math classes was just to avoid math. I was one of these people that become lawyers or something because they just hate they just hated what happened in math class so badly that they really wanted to avoid it at all costs. So I I went to the the general college at the University of Minnesota, which would allow you to get your grades up basically and to prove to university you belonged in a university. And then you could transfer into what you know they called the college of liberal arts in my case and i took some symbolic logic classes and thought well i'll be a german teacher at that point you know so my first year in school i tested out of all my german and didn't want to finish college after one year and decided to pick up spanish because um uh, i had gone at that point during after my first year in my uh, sophomore year to mexico to learn some spanish and thought why not um, so after that uh, pattern repeated and i tested out of my spanish courses during my second year, I decided to, to go into political science and ended up graduating uh, with a triple major um, with some honors because I took my, my college career much more seriously than I did my high school career. Um, in And in, in 19 or sorry, 2001 is when I graduated with those degrees.
0: So by now you you graduated uh, with a triple major and you've got German down and you've got Spanish down. When did French come into the picture?
1: Right. So in 2001, um, I was dating uh, a woman, a young woman that I met uh, during my third year of college, which I spent in. Um, East, the former East Germany. It was 1999, 2000 at that point. So this, the Berlin Wall had been down for almost a decade. But uh, this woman that I met was French, um, and she invited me to Paris uh, after uh, working under the table in Barcelona didn't work out very well. And she was working for the Committee of Regions, which is an advisory legislative body to the European Union. And uh, rather than going to become part of the French administration, as her parents had laid out for her as a ready path, she decided to strike uh, out her own path in the world. And so she went to Brussels and began to work as an intern. I thought, well, I'll do the same thing. So that parlayed into about five years um, uh, with a break, uh, uh, coming back to the United States for a little bit in Brussels, uh, where I began to do the same thing. I began to work in um, environmental policy, first as an intern uh, to NGOs, like the European Environmental Bureau, and then to uh, the European Parliament and the European Commission.
0: That is so amazing. I'm I'm starting to um, see a trend here, Nicholas, and, and that trend is the fact that it was through your travels that really, you know, helped inspire the learning of this other language uh, while you were in Germany. And then it sounds like, you know, you made a trip to Mexico and and then, um, you know, down the line to Brussels and you picked up French, which I find just fascinating that, you know, we we do hear this a lot, you know, the best way to learn that other language is, you know, through full immersion. Um, So I imagine that that in a way was exactly what was happening. Now, aside from that, though, I also think that one has to have that desire and that ability because, you know, you see many people that are immersed in, let's say, uh, the, the English language. And it just it doesn't come uh, as natural, maybe, you know, a little bit more difficult, not necessarily enough to the point where you can become a certified court interpreter in other, these other languages. And yet you have. Would you say that it came uh, it came natural to you?
1: i think it did come naturally now people would ask me sometimes hey how do i learn a language it looks like you've done it you know uh how do i do it well the first thing i answer is you know it looks like i did it but if you take me to an area of the language that i don't know i won't know what's going on anymore so having a good accent or no know, knowing these aspects of the language very well doesn't mean i know every aspect including those of the english language in and out and i don't right i, I have things to learn of course in every single language that i'm speaking the other thing that i tell people though is have something to talk about. So, for example, when I went to Brussels, I wanted to talk about the environment. I just graduated um, in a country where Christine Whitman, the former governor of New Jersey, uh, was... The head of the Environmental Protection Agency, and I didn't think she was doing a particularly good job sticking up for the environment in our country. And I thought, you know, I I think I'm going to go over to Europe and see how they do things over there and see if, if I feel like I'm making more progress. So I cared about the environment. And that gave me a reason to speak French because... French was the language, the working language in in the cities where I wanted to do my internships. So if someone wants to learn a language, I would often say to them, you know, find something to talk to someone about maybe first, and then the language will follow maybe next.
0: Mm, That's so amazing. So fascinating, Nicholas. So let's fast forward now to how you began your career in the language field. When did you make that transition? Do you remember?
1: Sure. So in 2004, I had finished a master's in international politics um, that I was doing alongside my internships in Brussels. And I had a choice. Was I going to stay in Europe, even though it was difficult for me to stay there without papers? Or was I going to come back to the United States and try and make a life for myself back there? At that point, I wanted to stay in Europe, but not at the cost of all of the difficult things I would have had to have done to do so without papers. So I came back uh, to Minnesota where I graduated as an undergrad and I thought, I kind of have to start all over here. I'm too old to be considered a college kid anymore. (laughs) (laughs) and I don't have much experience or actual skills that I can apply to any uh, tangible job. What am I doing? And I thought, well, I do speak some Spanish, I guess. I'll try interpreting. I started interpreting um, in the hospitals in Minnesota and thought immediately that this was a good thing to do. I was helping people. I could use language skills. I enjoyed learning about uh, science and medicine and, um, you know, uh, kept kept doing that for uh about two years until I decided, yeah this is a skill set that that can work for me i'd I'd like to do this professionally and 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 study interpreting seriously
0: now you have a mastery of specific context that you're just specialized in how did you even start with all of that let's take for instance in the medical field did you just once you you threw yourself in there did you just say i'm i'm going to you know delve even deeper and become an expert at this or what was the logic behind that
1: right that's a good question the answer is no um, what i learned in the medical field i learned because i used it i would tangentially research things that i found interesting mm-hmm. but i did not have what i would consider to be an expert level knowledge of anything that i learned in the medical field. Other people said they thought I sounded like experts, but if I would read a paper by experts, it was pretty clear that I wasn't an expert (laughs) right away. It wasn't until I worked in the conference field and I worked alongside experts that I realized, okay, I'm as a conference interpreter closer to what I would call an expert, but still not definitely not an expert in every field. And again, when you uh, read a lot of papers that people will talk about in very simplified ways during conferences, you'll begin to know the difference. And it's beautiful to see how far you can go into any certain field. But no, when I first started interpreting, I think if I became an expert in anything, it was the very kind of interpreting that I was doing. I um, was working in hospitals, making sure that I said everything everyone else said. And that was an enjoyable exercise. Uh, But limited, again, I think to the very scope and context of the interpreting situations that I actually worked in.
0: What made you want to go from medical to conference?
1: There are a lot of really good answers to that question. First of all, um, I had a background in politics. So I had a background in international situations where people from different cultures, nations, uh, socioeconomic classes, political orientations, all had to come together and talk about one thing, whether they were trying to get things done together, whether they were trying to get things done in some kind of context of conflict. And all of the skills and knowledge I had from that period of my life did not directly apply to the medical interpreting that I was doing. I felt like there was a lot of growth that would wilt if I didn't try to match the investment I had in politics with the skill I wanted to to build further in interpreting. And so for that reason, um, I took some advice from some people who knew me really well, and I decided to go back to Europe and to formally study conference interpreting.
0: I find that so fascinating because oftentimes I uh, find myself also sharing that same thing with everyone, which is... You know, it isn't about isolating your uh, your background w- when you get into interpreting. It's about bringing it all together. Like there is a place for whatever your background is, whatever your history is in interpreting, and it it would only help um, just amplify your skill set, particularly if you could focus on something that you're really interested in. So the fact that you just mentioned that that's in fact what You ended up doing it's like, you see, guys, here's an example.
1: You're absolutely right. Now, that word focus that you put so much emphasis on is an extremely important word. And I'm learning that now as I'm trying to become a business person, I need to focus more. And I found my focus now, but we can come back to that later but focus is extremely important. Now, I knew I wanted to focus, going back to that word, uh, on conference interpreting and not on medical interpreting in 2005. And in 2006, I began to study in Paris um, at the the Catholic Institute in the sixth arrondissement. And when I began those studies, I was impressed with the level of facile intelligence that all of my Professors showed these people knew topics that were in the news in a depth that only reporters on Capitol Hill or that worked for Le Monde in Paris, that worked for you know a, a good newspaper in Berlin would know. And these were the sorts of conversations that I would have uh, with people in NGOs that were drafting European law as well. So I was excited to be back in those sorts of conversations. However, when I graduated. Uh, With a degree in conference interpreting and actually went out into the world and started interpreting, I realized one obvious thing was if I was going to work on the open market, I would not necessarily be able to choose my focus. I would not necessarily be able to say, you know what, I'm interested in Harley-Davidson's. I'm going to interpret for the Harley-Davidson Licensed Dealers Association meeting. Uh, Next month in Germany, I happened to have gotten called for that job, which is why I did that job, not because (laughs) I planned it. So getting a focus was, was difficult when I first started my career as a conference interpreter because I had to go where the jobs were and I didn't have the luxury of necessarily interpreting in my field of interest or expertise.
0: I was just going to ask that. Was it because it's, you know, as you're at this point, I imagine um, you're a freelancer. Is that, is that a correct term in conference interpreting?
1: Definitely. So fast forward to 2010, I had to find a school that was right for me. So advice I'll give to people who are considering formal conference interpreting studies Look at the culture of the institution that you're going to consider studying at. Different schools have different cultures, and that makes a night and day difference for the the student uh, of an institution. Is it a one-year school? Is it a two-year school? Is the school fair? I'm going to come out and say it. um, I went to one school for a year, and I listened at the door when the exam scores, let's call them, were given. And this was a a two-year school where people would be passed or failed, where about $100,000 in two years, 700 days of a person's time could vanish. And some people failed because of the fact that someone on the jury did not like them. Some people were said to have sounded like actors or other people were said to have, you know, a tone of voice that someone didn't like. And as an American, I think, you know, you might not, Necessarily like the affect of someone saying something, but if the person can interpret correctly, they're going to be useful to a government or business or an NGO. And I also uh, heard in some of these institutions some people that would pass these degrees, even though they had made a lot of mistakes because they knew the right people. So a lot of great people pass and a lot of great education happens in a lot of institutions, but be very careful, I think, when you're choosing one of these schools. I graduated, I can say, from uh, London Metropolitan University. I found that place to be very meritocratic and very fair.
0: That is great advice, but it's sad that in this day and age, we still hear about um just organizational culture that's that's still in that way, you know, um, of the internal politics, I suppose, is what I'm thinking and and you make me think of, you know all of the great speakers um you know that that were once told that they would never amount to uh, anything great in public speaking or authors or, you know, or anyone for that sort that just was told that they would not be good in their particular chosen field or passion. And then they turned around and they were exactly that, if not more. So it's incredible to me to hear that someone, you know, you devote, I'm, I'm thinking if I were in that, in their shoes, I, I've i devoted my time and my effort and, and and probably tears and 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 then, you know, everything else that's involved in building that skill set only to get rejected by um, someone. It's just it sounds like a personal thing, you know, and it's just quite sad.
1: Well, that's exactly it, Mireya. I mean, I want to be careful here. One thing you do in your podcast that's amazing and extremely useful, especially now where where so many of us are in a time of transition, is you bring people together and you support people. However, it's not good to tell someone something that's untrue about themselves, even if it's you know positive. If you don't think someone can jump six feet in the air, you shouldn't tell them they can, right? Mm-hmm. What I saw from these institutions is they seem to f- follow, you know, understandably so, uh, an old world elitist culture in a certain way, where if mm-hmm. if you were born in the right family and you knew the right people, for better or for worse, you were going to be more useful to an organization that purportedly was a democratic and open organization, but in reality was uh, an elitist organization. And that culture uh, would definitely find its way into a lot of the, at least European-based, conference interpreting programs that you would graduate to if you wanted to get invited to the State Department test, to the EU test, to the SCIC test at, at Uh, the European Union and Parliament so that was my my first goal to what I what I call the the front door approach to becoming um, a conference interpreter in internet intergovernmental organizations but uh, I found out very quickly that you know uh, it was better for me to uh, become active professionally in a field where I squared with the culture morally and I am just not uh, a Napoleonic continental European (laughs) I discovered I'm much too American to go that out personally (laughs)
0: No, and I think that, you know, part of um just my appreciation with having a platform such as this, it's being open, being able to be, you know, as, as forthcoming as we possibly can with anyone that's aspiring to be perhaps a Nicholas one day or any of the other amazing guests that I've had. And oh, yeah. we have had people here that have shared just, you know, the these just this difficulties and challenges that that they encounter and Perhaps giving someone else the opportunity to sway away from that, if just by listening to your experience and um, you know taking in some advice from someone that's already gone through that. So I am always very appreciative of the fact that when um, our guests are very open and honest with their experiences because it's always assisting someone else. And I love that you you know gave out just really look into uh, you know the school's culture as well and um, having those conversations with others. As as well as listening to this podcast, you know, hopefully, just inspire someone to look a little deeper into their studies or their school of choice, I should say. And speaking of challenges, Nicholas, what would you say has been your biggest career challenge that you can think of? And what did it teach you?
1: That's a really easy question to answer. Before I do, I, I do want to mention, you know. If you're going to apply to a school, and there's about 20 schools that I can think of, the Monterey Institute is one in the United States. There are a couple obvious candidates in, in uh, London and Paris and Geneva, right? But if you're going to apply to one of these schools and you want to know if the school's culture is for you, you can try to talk to people who graduated from that school some people who pass the exams and some people who fail the exams and all these schools are pass fail they're not schools where you write papers get a grade and have sort of predictable oversight over the outcome of your your educational investment you are at the whim of a closed door committee now this was with with the exception of london metropolitan university where i think it was much more transparent and meritocratic. but in any case if you want to square your ability as an interpreter with the possibility of succeeding at one of the institutions try interpreting try recording yourself and simply look at conferences that that these people work at graduates from these schools uh, work at and uh, try to interpret these conferences listen to yourself mm-hmm. do it um, it's it's not impossible to find out if you're in the ballpark or not and if you are trust me if you work at something and you're happy doing it you can succeed now to answer your question you know what's been difficult for me um passing exams was never my biggest difficulty i've been lucky with the exams so uh the first time for example i took the court exam i failed because i didn't know any legal terminology Mm. point blank i didn't know enough let's put it that way once i studied the legal terminology um i passed with a score that was good enough in wisconsin the um state consortium exam uh, to be an interpreter in the courts, the certification exam consists of four parts, and the first two parts are site translation parts, and then there's a consecutive and a simultaneous part. And Wisconsin is one of the many states that average the first two site translation parts together. Well, since I'd gotten below 70 and I think an 80 or whatever on the second in Wisconsin, uh, California wouldn't let me work until I took the exam again. So I had to take that exam a third time until I passed in Spanish. but. I was already able to work in some other states. And then when I took it in French, I got a very good score. So I didn't have any problems learning to pass those exams. I wasn't a whiz kid that passed them all the first time, of course. But once I learned to do it, that wasn't my biggest fear. I went to the State Department. I passed their exam, et cetera. So the exams to me were okay. A lot of people, I think, again, you're going to feel judged when you you fail these exams. I did. And that was a, a hurdle for a lot of people that didn't really become my biggest one. The biggest problem I had in the industry... Was the fact, you know, and I was listening um, to, you know, the the Bill Glasser episode, for example, Um, episodes, uh, a lot of episodes that you have with uh, Giovanni Cario Contreras. Mm. It's important for interpreters to do the job correctly, which means you say what, uh, you know, the message other people are giving, you render that into another language. And there are all these other parts that exist within you as a human being that need to be put on pause. You can hopefully tap into them somehow but those parts of you if you're going to be a complete and healthy person also need to to exist just not when you're working. And a problem that I found was that working as a conference interpreter and then working as a court interpreter and doing it so much uh, so often for so long made it difficult for me to enjoy making decisions and having my own agency and living and all the other things that you you do in a much more active way when you're not interpreting. So finding that balance simply between who I was as a human being um, and how to square that with being, you know, an interpreter. Uh, was my biggest difficulty. If you're from Wisconsin and you're like, I think a lot of people uh, that are from Wisconsin, or Minnesota, kind of the Midwestern culture, it's really important when you go to work that you do a good job and sometimes that's so important that you think, oh, if I do a good job, I'll just be happy. If my work, you know, if I'm professional in my, my work life, I'm going to thrive as a human being emotionally. That's not always true. You, you really need to make sure that your life outside of work is, is fruitful and satisfying and fulfilling. And one of the big challenges in conference interpreting is, is like, like a lot of people say, you can be married to a suitcase. So you can be flying, uh, living in hotels. You can be, you know, spending a lot of time driving, listening to podcasts, right? Talking to friends on the phone. So that can make it hard to have some kind of a, a garden you're growing in your life, a project, some kind of thing you're building. And now uh, I think, you know, uh, while remote interpreting does obviously have a lot of huge drawbacks. And provide a lot of challenges to people one really nice thing about remote interpreting is we don't need to be spending as much time in cars we can work for the two or three hours a day we can do the specific kind of work we want we can be available to people all over the world and then we at least in my case you know uh, we can get on a sailboat more we can write some more songs we can do bike journeys of uh southern california uh the list goes on so
0: yeah. Um, you can make more podcast episodes. I, I'm i totally with
1: you. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> I'm
0: totally with you. I think right. it's, I, and I have to, I'm going to have to ask this just because I know that there'll be interpreters out there that always have these follow-up questions with regards to some of these, um, you know, things that are brought up in, in the shows, uh, Nicholas, but you mentioned real brief that um, you didn't know the legal terminology when you dove in to go take that exam. What did you end up doing specifically to help you pass this exam?
1: Right, great question. I, I was self-taught basically, so I like I think the majority of people, at least that I talked to, I used the asebo materials. I'd taken the the exam once without any study whatsoever, uh, kind of to gauge where i was with the exam and then i used the acebo materials i made a glossary, and then my approach to the exam that is a recommendation i give to everyone else is to create a bunch of exams for yourself practice exams which consists of those four parts two-site translation, one consecutive, and one simultaneous portion. And then to take that exam, self-administered, of course, at the time of day that your exam is scheduled, in this case now in the United States with Prometrics. So sign up, get your date, and then in the two or three months, actually have the discipline to sit down and take these exams. If you have a study partner, it's even better because you can make a series of exams for your study partner to take that will be fresh to them. So if you make your own exams, of course, you're going to remember some of the material, but that's what I did. I bought Holly Mickelson's uh, material and and I, I used it um, and I, I sat down and made a glossary. And of course, taking that exam three times um, helps you kind of narrow down what the scoring units are. Another. The really important piece to my self-study that I should have mentioned at the beginning was buying the practice exam from the National Center for State Courts. It's available in Spanish, and it was the best investment I made because you can actually see what you're up against when you want to pass that court exam. Mm. Then, recording yourself, of course, when you're um, when you're practicing, is extremely important because there's no other way to know for sure if you're actually saying what you think you're saying and not saying some things that you think you would. <laughs>
0: Well, that's uh, actually a great piece of advice. Thank you for sharing that, Nicholas, because I know that there's always like, OK, but how did he do it? You know, they want it. They want the story to, you know, go a little deeper. So thank you for for having shared that, sure. because I know that that's going to prove to be very useful to many. Now, on the flip side to your biggest challenge, I'm also always interested in what you feel was your biggest highlight in your career. Have you gotten to that point here where you feel like you're just happy that that happened, whether it was a crossroad or anything of the sort that you consider to be your biggest highlight in your career?
1: Definitely. So one big thing that a lot of people feel in this uh, job and others is the imposter syndrome. I remember walking into situations where I thought I can't possibly be prepared be prepared for doing this. There's no way I can do this. I feel like a hack. I feel like I'm going to crush under the pressure. And feeling the uh, synapses magically connect under fire, under pressure, in the right Mm -hmm. moment, uh, when it really counts. Understanding things that magically seem to come to crystalline clarity in your mind. And uh, out of your mouth at the same time, those feelings were amazing. And it really felt like, um, you know, a a person that's, uh, you know, trained and and, and done some exercises is now finally running for the first time. And, Mm -hmm. And it's just such an amazing feeling. Um, So that that happened in some of my first conference jobs in the European Union, um, in Germany and in in Britain, mostly. And the other really cool thing about those jobs was that I would interpret one day for a windmill uh, manufacturer that made enormous machines that would be purchased by a French electric concern to, to, to make and sell electricity. And have to go into the technical details of the parts, how they worked, how they were designed, how they could fail, and uh, the electric principles of them. The next day would be the sheer stress of the 4B and the AC-72 catamaran of the Artemis racing team. And then the very next day, uh, the intricate workings of some Genentech patents. And then the next day, the next day, the next day. And these different topics being so disparate among themselves, but still somehow at the end of the day overlapping was completely amazing. Um, So the nexus of things that you don't think are connected, uh, overlapping, in just uh, amazingly, brilliantly satisfying ways was the second really cool thing. Now, feeling like you can do the job and then how beautiful the connecting information that you get from that job is. Uh, the the third thing that I liked, I think, particularly about conference interpreting, that I thought was just wonderful. And you know, I, I I don't have a story about one moment, unfortunately. I I just like to talk. I think more broadly about the things I really like about the job. But yeah. Uh, another thing I really, really like about conference interpreting is the people that you meet. So um, in 2013, uh, a man named Jorge Cibero Issa, who's the, the former president of the Supreme Court of the Dominican Republic, came to San Francisco and he was given an award by the Commonwealth Club for extending the rule of law, making more courts in the Dominican Republic, making them more available making the law more transparent, giving people access to justice. I think for people who work in the courts, uh, the satisfaction of furthering access to justice is a clearly wonderful thing. Well, this man was doing great work, like the water keepers that I worked with, like so many other people that I worked with, the NGOs, um, for example, There was uh, an NGO um, that I worked for in in, uh, San Francisco that um, was stopping the instance of sexual abuse in in the central African regions where it was most prevalent and uh, pernicious by a series of blogs. And the people in that NGO that were getting together were uh, telling their success stories and talking about the challenges. These wonderful people that you meet, they make an impression on your life. And they open your eyes to the meaning of work that's going on in the world that you could also, you know, outside of your interpreting role, easily participate in. I compare interpreters a lot of times to journalists because we are not doing the things that we're talking about, but we have to know the working parts of these things that we're talking about. And once we know these working parts, we can start to feel which ones that we would be able to move ourselves. And it's it's a really, really privileged thing. So that third thing I really like about conference interpreting is the people that you meet. Um, court interpreting is, is different. I, I really like working in the courts because, like I said, giving access to justice is a wonderful thing. So it's a different kind of satisfaction that you get to help someone. And I, you know, I think some of your other guests do talk about this definitely than it is to help a, a company, although that can be a wonderful feeling too. But knowing that you helped a family that you respect very much to gain access to justice during a time when they have that limited access to justice is a wonderful feeling too, because you can imagine right now during COVID especially, it's hard to get a court hearing. So if you can go to your court hearing as a person who has limited English skills and still conduct that court hearing, that's it's really valuable. So it's it's great to be part of that too.
0: Those are all so great, and I think that many would find that uh, just inspirational as far as they're concerned with wanting to get into the field, even more so, you know, and try to experience these things, Nicholas, as as you have. I'd like to ask now what you feel are some specific roadblocks as one is seeking to get into the field that you would say, now that you're a seasoned interpreter in two different specializations that you could watch out for that you would be able to share with others?
1: Sure. This is not practicing what I preach, but I think a lot of people do not take the initiative to find things they're interested in and find a way to interpret there. Like I said, I ended up interpreting where I did after I went to school, after I went through a set path that I didn't create. But I think if more people would say, hey, you know what, Um, I'm really interested in rooftop gardening. And I wonder if rooftop gardening will become the thing of the future in places with disused buildings that COVID has has lain fallow. I wonder if there's a way to get and find some association and just follow a passion um, into a situation where you yourself can build your own job. I think if more people did that, uh, they wouldn't worry then about what kind of grades they got or what kind of judgment they had to withstand or endure from other people or whether they were useful because those questions would all all be answered indeed, right? They would feel that those, those, those things weren't even problems for them. Um, but, you know, aside from not being a self-starter and not kind of making your own path in the world as an interpreter, I think interpreters, a lot of times, they're, they're people who listen, and they're people who are respectful. They're people who can be deferential sometimes. So sometimes people think they're not good enough, or they, they're afraid that they're not going to be able to go out there in the world and succeed, and so they don't try. Or they they that will add up to so much exam anxiety that if they do take the State Department exam, the UN exam, the SCIC exam, whatever it is, um, you know, they have trouble with those exams. So if that's you, if you know deep down you can do it, but you just get too worked up, uh, you know, try. Go somewhere else where you don't get worked up and try would be my, my. Uh, so, you know, we need our limbic systems. We need our emotions to be firing correctly as interpreters to do our job. And when those, when that part of your brain, the deep part that feels feelings, that feels you know fr- fear and pain and excitement, when all those parts of you are polluted and, and filled up with with anxiety, you're not going to be able to interpret. So find a way that you can clear that that part out. Um, get your legs under you. Get get your confidence, and then go out in the world and do it. And if and if you need to pass an exam, um, know that you know you can overcome those nerves eventually and you can pass that exam. I did, you can do it.
0: I love that. That is so true. So get out there. You got this. I want to change uh, the topic a little bit now to get specific into the world of conference interpreting, uh, Nicholas. And I'd like to talk about conference interpreting pre-COVID times. So what was that experience like for you just as a conference interpreter before the pivot with remote interpreting uh, happened? What was conference interpreting like for you?
1: Right. So I've talked about the fact that I enjoy employing the skill of conference interpreting. I love the ideas, the network of ideas that you get to enjoy. I love the people uh, that were delegates to the the conferences or parts of the NGOs. Those three things were wonderful. But now to talk about kind of the mechanics, the reality of working in that field, conference interpreters, at least as I was a conference interpreter, would typically go to a hotel ballroom, let's say. They would go to the back where there was an isolated soundproof booth. They would sit down uh, in uh, that booth that usually smelled like coffee Uh, next to a booth partner and glossaries would be exchanged or not. You'd get a a vibe from your booth partner to see how nervous they were or how not nervous. They were, how things were going. And you would begin to interpret. I think with all of the online platforms, um, you know, there's uh, many of them out there, Um, but with all of the interpreter driven based and made platforms available, a large portion of that market is not going to happen anymore. Um, a lot of companies are no longer no longer going to pay for travel uh, for an interpreter to fly around the world and to be in a hotel and uh, for a sound company to hire a tech and to put up the booths and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that brick and mortar world of conference interpreting was something that I really enjoyed because... Uh, of the mostly camaraderie with the people, and I'm definitely going to miss that part of it. If you know, I work only in uh,
0: isolation.
1: Production. Yeah, <laughs> right on the screen in isolation these days. Although. <laughs> I guess I'm a person, I didn't totally feel isolated necessarily when I was working, because if you are back in the booth, and this is something I think conference interpreters kind of will understand, the entire idea of the booth is, is isolation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it is it is different knowing that you can walk out of the booth and when your, your work day is done, talk to uh, that delegate from Madrid about flamenco music or, or whatever it is. But uh, while you're working, the isolation factor is was still there so i don't think you know as far as that chunk of your experience that only happens during the the time that you're actually working as a conference interpreter i don't think it's going to be that that different between working remotely and working in person but i really enjoyed working in person i mean i really did
0: Yeah. Yeah. I've heard that time and time again, how um, it's that it's that personal connection. You know, it's just that human nature of us wanting to uh, socialize and connect with other human beings that I think that's the part in our field um, that a lot of people are mainly missing. Um, because it's just, it's just a completely different dynamic. So, um, in your experience as a conference interpreter, I was just very curious to know what that was like. And in addition to the actual experience while interpreting, I I'm curious to know how quick it was for you to make that market pivot to remote conference interpreting. So, you know, there was a moment of silence, if you would, um, when all these shutdowns started to take this domino effect across the world. And suddenly, there were absolutely no conferences happening. And there was just this, this long pause, what it seemed like, until people started to you know, get back on their feet and start thinking technology wise, you know, how can we still make this happen? And then to all of a sudden, it's like, boom, you know, remote conference interpreting is going on. But how quick was that really? Or rather, how slow was that market pivot for you personally, would you
1: say? The pivot happened instantaneously because I had not done remote conferences until March of 2020. So the first few meetings I had scheduled were court hearings that had to happen Mm. and specifically needed a French or a German interpreter. So those two languages have been ones where um, I've, I've been called on to work remotely even before COVID just because the number of court registered in this the california case french and german interpreters or french certified interpreters in some other states as the terminology goes is limited so people um rather than flying me into north carolina began to use me remotely but um because i started with legal interpreting it wasn't that big of a pivot for me Mm -hmm. Um, now as some people know there are uh platforms um, like Interpret.io or Kudos, that will, they say, certify an interpreter um, working uh, online. So they will make sure that you can use their platform. They'll take a look at your resume, and then they'll list you as someone who's basically proven that, that you can use their software on their websites. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, a real pivot is... Um, A real pivot is not the fact that I'm personally going to be able to work and through my agency provide work for other people Mm -hmm. um, as conference interpreters remotely. To me, the real pivot is going to be um, an initiative I'm really excited about now, which is the, um, the foundation of the International Association of Remote Conference Interpreters. There are associations of professional conference interpreters right now that have subcommittees that have groups within them that are working specifically on conference interpreting remotely. But I would like to uh, find interested people that have the same mission in mind, which is to create an open organization where anyone that has a reliable internet connection can test in their own specialty as a conference interpreter and post their results to one central, completely accessible website without having to have two or three other people suggest that they are part of a club, that they are good enough, that meritocracy will allow these people to gain access to a world of possibility by their own merits. So the International Association of Remote Conference Interpreters would be a testing body that would post the uh, exam results um, of visible speeches um, and allow people, uh, hopefully as the, uh, the, the portfolio progresses, to see the actual interpreting performances of test takers real time. And I think that's really going to be a game changer because now um, not only um, will the fact that someone doesn't know the right people no longer be a barrier, but if someone lives in West Africa speaks beautiful french and has written three books on an important uh uh, agricultural topic for example they're now going to be able from their living room with a good internet connection be able to sit at the table uh with their their colleagues in iowa and be very useful conference interpreters and so i'm really excited about this because it's going to democratize it's going to be a chance to um go back i think to the, the 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 tenets of a and meritocracy that I learned in Wisconsin it's not uh, where you come from and how fancy your name is and and what your parents bank account looks like it's it's you know what what you can do in this world and uh how other people you know and you can can work together and make each other's lives better so um, what i'm really really excited about is is that new initiative that um that i'm currently you know uh, uh liaising with other interpreters on and other folks uh, uh to build so if anyone is interested you know if anyone finds interest in in uh, help with the project of uh, the International Association of Remote Conference Interpreters, the, the work's underway, and you can go ahead and contact me. I'd be happy to hear from you.
0: What was your reasoning behind such initiative, Nicholas? Was this derived from your personal experiences of the things that you saw uh, while doing your schooling, or did you just begin to hear of more experiences of you know with other colleagues? Or what was the reasoning behind this initiative?
1: Well, there are two. Uh, main reasons. First of all, right now, uh, for better, or for worse, you know, for worse, because there are disadvantages to remote interpreting. Um, we're going to miss being with each other. I'm going to miss meeting new people. You know, I've taken trips around the world to visit people that I met at conferences and these trips had nothing to do with work right i mean a lot of people are definitely going to miss the benefits of interpreting in person but there are like i said many benefits to remote interpreting as well and for better or for worse like it or not a large portion of the conference market is going remote and it's not going to go back to brick and mortar hmm. so for this reason i think it's time to found an association of remote conference interpreters on the international level that is based on the principles of meritocracy Shared respect and and quality, uh, and and looking at this as colleagues and saying, okay, we're going to reward what people can do, what people can bring to the market, and we're going to do this together, and we're going to do this, you know, across the world. So um, the other reason for doing that is there are there are lots of other professional organizations out there, but I don't know of any other professional conference interpreting um, body that brings interpreters together to allow them to show their skills to prove their skills and to promote each other based only on these skills rather than who they know rather than uh, their, their their cultural connections
0: I think you've given our listeners just a whole lot of very specific um you know information in terms of what they can do to either improve or to begin the process or to continue the process or even extend to something, you know, other than what they're currently doing, Um, just thinking about the future. And I think it, it, you know, speaks volumes about you and, you know, your focuses throughout the years and in this profession. And, you know, I I just, I hope that others do in fact connect with you and are able to just uh, continue this conversation because there seems to be so much more. And so I hope that connections can be made, or maybe even at one point we can do a part two and do a little bit of a follow-up with your endeavor. Nicholas, before we wrap up here, where can our listeners find out more about you and the work that you do?
1: Yes, uh, thank you. And like to respond to the point about part two, I think it would be great to do a part two because, like I said, this association is nascent. It's it's, uh, being formed right now. Uh, The bylaws are being drafted. I have the website under construction, et cetera. But again, anyone who shares this vision, and there's going to be some people listening to your podcast that will uh, go ahead and contact me. So uh, to answer that portion, how do you contact me? Um, the business that I uh, run is called Techlex, T E C H L E X languages.com. Again, that's T E C H L E X languages.com. Uh, what we do at Techlex.com is uh, mainly two part. We, uh, we can offer many services, but our, our main services are remote conference interpreting and business consulting. So a lot of people can't get on airplanes right now, um, and even if they could, Uh, They don't necessarily have the cultural and linguistic skills required to accomplish their business missions abroad. So we uh, specifically help them uh, to do that. Um, So, yeah, techlexlanguages.com is a great way to, to get a hold of me. And I really do look forward to hearing from anybody that's interested in working on these projects.
0: That sounds great. Any final thoughts before we go, Nicholas, for beginning interpreters or anyone that is just wishing or thinking about getting into either court interpreting or conference interpreting?
1: Absolutely. So the life you lead as a human being is something that you will constantly have to nurture, I think, if you work as an interpreter. And if you do that, it is a wonderful career the amount of free time you can have, the amount of independence that you can have. And uh, eventually, once you specialize and have good contacts, the amount of specialization you have, the, the wonderful people that you meet uh, is amazing. And, you know, if you're willing to, to cultivate your own life correctly outside of the time you spend working, um, you can have a wonderful, a wonderful, wonderful life. Um, court interpreting, I think, is a bit more specific. But uh, to me, you know, it, it's almost like a, a social work, uh, service uh, calling that um, has extreme rewards. I mean, um, the fact that you're able to help people have access to justice in the courts again is is a uniquely satisfying experience. So if anyone specifically wants to have some pointers or help on passing the court exam or becoming a conference interpreter or selecting a school, um, and if anyone is a conference interpreter and they do want to contact me, you know, and let me know that they're out there, that that's uh, again any of those things, I'm happy to help with. And um, like some of your other guests, you know, I think when we say this, we say it sincerely. I'm definitely definitely happy to help. You know, I, I don't. charge people money for this or anything like that i i really uh like to see people have the best life they can as an interpreter and i'm always happy to help people do that
0: well nicholas it has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on the show i cannot wait to share this episode with the Brandy interpreter community i think they're going to find this information absolutely fascinating absolutely useful and relevant to uh you know, our times today. And I do truly hope that there's connections that are made in the very near future for you. Thank you again for joining me.
1: Well, thank you. And uh, Mireya, you know, you've got a quote by George Bernard Shaw on your website. And I love it. What, what he said and what you quoted about communication is absolutely right on. And the man didn't live to 94 for, for no reason. So <laughs> I think you're onto something. Your podcast is great, it's so needed right now. Uh, People need to connect and the quality of guests you have on and and your skill as an interviewer. uh, Yeah, I'm really glad you're doing this.
0: Thank you, Nicholas. It means a lot. I appreciate that. You're welcome. Take care. All right. Hey, if you enjoyed this episode as much as I did, please feel free to share it. Or you can also take a screenshot and include the highlights of the episode on your social media platforms. Tag me. I'd love to hear about them. And if you have an idea, would like to recommend a guest on the show, please visit me at www.brandtheinterpreter.com. Click on the Let's Connect button and connect with me. I hope to see you again next week. here on the Brand the Interpreter podcast as I tell your stories about our profession. Thanks again, guys. Till next time. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, please visit my website at www.brandtheinterpreter.com and click the Let's Connect button. Feel free to connect with me that way directly. You can also find me on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter as Brand the Interpreter or as Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Also, if you've not already, please subscribe to this podcast, share this episode, or leave me a review. I would really appreciate it. Thank you again and take care.